Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, here today with Corey Squire, my good friend and colleague. Corey is a registered architect who impacts society through his consulting firm, Department of Sustainability. What a cool name. He's also the Sustainability Director at Bora Architecture in Portlandia, Oregon. And a couple of housekeeping things. One is, this is part two of probably what's going to be a three-part series So if you haven't listened to part one, uh, it's up to you. Um, This might stand alone, but I guess I would nudge you to to, uh, go back and listen to part one and then come back. Uh, The other one is big news today, as of this recording, uh, the 14th of November in the year 2023. Today is the big day when Corey's book launch happens. Yay! Corey, any comments on the book launch? Yeah, it's uh, uh, these, these things take a long time and I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, about nine months after um, I turned in the manuscript, um, I'm super excited that the book is available as of today. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, uh, everyone now, this book is called People, Planet, Design. We're going to have a link in the show notes. Um, you can also just you know go to Google, go to Amazon, go wherever and find it. Um, the book is essentially a, an encapsulation, I have learned this from Puri, of the firm level consulting that he's been doing for many years. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I've gotten to be on some of those firm level consulting gigs with him. And I can tell you it is hugely potent and impactful for the architecture firms that does it. And uh, Corey is essentially a crazy man, just giving it all away now. Give it away, give it away now. And uh, you're reminding me of a Hafiz poem. I'm going to start with Hafiz. How many podcasts do that? The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. All right, here we go, Corey. We're going to light that sky. Um, so today we're going to be discussing practice, the practice of architecture. So practice in in the sense of like, not like you're practicing getting better. Oh, I guess in that sense too. But I meant the practice in the sense of like carrying out of a profession in society. That That is the practice. So we're going to endeavor to unpack that today. And some of the themes we're going to be talking about are vision, culture, design process, and knowledge or resources, or as I think of as information flow. So, wow. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about practice. So, yeah. So lots of topics. And I guess just to kind of place the conversation kind of within the outline of the book, the first section of the book, which is what we discussed during podcast number one, was on theory. So what is the purpose of architecture? What is sustainability? What are our ultimate goals? This section, uh, part two of the book, is about practice. And what we look at here is how does a practitioner or how does a firm set up a process or a system so that design results in those good outcomes that we discussed in in chapter one, right? Those good outcomes being carbon reduction, ecological functioning, social equity, human health, all these things that were so clear that we want, 
um, there's a social context within architecture, the way architecture is practiced. Um, and it's not always aligned with the outcomes that we want. We have this opportunity to both learn the technical strategies to get both outcomes, and that's going to be covered in, uh, in part three of the book, podcast number three, when we get there. Uh, but also there's the social structure. How does this work within a firm? How do you talk about these ideas? How do you prevent kind of what I call the, the weight of traditional practice, just the kind of the, the, the magnitude of the way things have been done in the past from not pushing a project in the wrong direction? Yeah. Yeah, I had the mental image of traditional practice as being a bunch of very skilled, hardworking uh, rowboat operators you know, on their oars and yet facing backward and not quite realizing it. So, yeah, you mentioned the social context there, the social context of practice. And I guess it's both within the firm, this, the social relationships between the principal, the leadership of the firm and uh, the rest of the firm, and as well as the relationships with the project team and the owners. Is that right? Would you? Yeah. I mean, so they're often, often great ideas end up dying because they don't have the support that they need. Right. So if I say as an architecture, as an architect in a firm, I'm going to push really hard to create a really wonderful environment from an interior environmental standpoint to cut carbon. And if somebody either within the firm says, no, we don't have time for that. Our primary goal is to, quote unquote, deliver this project on time and on budget. If a contractor says, oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. If the client says, how much is that going to cost me? Right. That can just kind of crush that great idea in the bud. And, um, and we don't want that to happen. Right. We want to say we have all the technology that we need to achieve really excellent design that solves a lot of the global problems that we're facing. Um, we need to know what those what those strategies are, but that is not the whole picture. The rest of it is how do we work within the social context that exists today to realize to realize these ideas? Yeah, absolutely. And 2023, the social context is complicated, right? And does that complication, I mean, I, I would imagine logically it finds its way into firms. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I feel I like, like 2023 is more complicated than any other period. I, I think that there's a there's a way that things have been done, right? And the way that things have been done um, is not a reason to continue doing things that way. And it, does, it also doesn't mean that that's the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but doing something different is hard, right? Because there is a there's a perceived risk of doing something different. So we've always used this product, and the product is good enough, right? Um, but it might not be the best product. It might not result in the best energy efficiency or the best indoor air quality. Um, and we know there's another option out there. Like we could choose a different product. We could choose a different product that's maybe manufactured locally. Um, we could choose a different product that's not made of toxins. And there's a really good chance that's going to result in a better all-around outcome. Uh, but some people perceive that as a risk because it's different. So we have to get... We have to create an environment, and that's what a lot of these chapters are about, is creating an environment that encourages the best outcome, not that protects people um, from feeling vulnerable to new risks or to makes people comfortable because they're going to do the same thing that they've always done and get the same outcome that they've always gotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, Please. Oh, no. uh, So 
so one of the first, one of the f- most important pieces, which which I discussed in the book, in establishing kind of this better social context, this better environment in which to practice, um, is to create a vision. Right. That's the first point of discussion. Yeah, I just want to be, be very clear, this kind of beautiful um, symmetry between every architect and architecture team knows they're going to create an environment for their client, for their owner. And they are also implicitly involved in creating an environment for their team to work in, for their project team to work in. Um, and the latter is somewhat of a you know, like an emotional environment, a mental environment, a cognitive, because knowledge is a little more. Right. And, and, you know, and it's, there is a, yeah, there is this social environment that we work in, right? If you're going to constantly feel pressure to complete something, if, if you're, <laughs> if your supervisors are like just beating you down, you're not going to get anything good out of that. It's right? never good enough or whatever. Right. Yeah. The, the physical environment obviously also matters, right? If you're in this really aspirational physical environment with, let's say, great air quality, great views to nature, your work is going to be better than if you're in this this windowless box with, which is very cold or very warm or noisy or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of this section of the book is how do you design that environment, both the physical environment and the social environment uh, within which design takes place with the goal of that design work being better. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to bring you back to vision in a second. Okay. Actually, you just make something alive in me. So I, as... <laughs> engineer i know some professors at ut and i've been invited to some of these things called crits or design reviews kind of thing that students share to their with their architecture professors and oh my goodness Corey, the the i don't know the level of mansplaining and like fierce criticism and just like some the, the student has worked and worked and worked the, the person is leading is just like this crap you know, yeah, like, it's, a, it's a problematic culture in architecture and architecture schools that leads to these kind of like tear down everything reviews. And yeah. the outcome of that um, is that architects are trained to post rationalize. So I have this idea. I've been working towards this idea for months. The random professor who thinks they're a big shot shows up and says, my idea is no good. What do I do in response to that? I post rationalize. I find something something else that I never thought about that maybe more aligns with this random professor's random idea, and that's a, that's a big problem, right? Because we we take that we take that from school into practice, yeah, right, and we we spend a little too much time post rationalizing. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm reminded of a story you told in the book. Maybe we can insert it here, where as a junior designer, you were sitting in with the principal at a project team meeting, and um, you asked if there could be operable windows. Do you remember that one? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, I can, and I can, I can share the story. This was my first, my first job and probably my first meeting with consultants. Oh, um, wow. As an architect. So influential moment in some way. And yeah, we were, we were talking about, I don't know, systems or design or whatever. And I mentioned that we should have opera windows on this project. And the two are the two engineers at the table, like no offense, no, no offense, Christoph, to, to your profession. The two engineers at the table burst out laughing. They're like, obviously, we would, like, what's this guy saying? We'd obviously not have operable windows in this project. And, well, like, you should say the program. What, what was the building? I don't, I don't even remember. It's not even important, right? Well, it, it wasn't was, a house. And no, it was not a house. Yeah, obviously the house would have operable windows, which then the kind of senior architect at the table with me um, responded to the engineers do you have operable windows in your own house? 
as a way of saying this idea is not crazy. Now, what and 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 basically the engineers didn't know how to respond, right? And the <laughs> and the idea stayed on the table. And I don't know if that project ended up with Opera Windows or not. It, it didn't, but it probably didn't. But the, but the lesson for me as a junior architect is that my ideas have value, even the atypical or non-traditional ideas. And a more common, I was very lucky to be in that situation because a much more common situation would have been um, the senior architect is intimidated by the engineers laughing and says, obviously, we will never bring up a stupid idea like that again. Yeah. And what is the right solution? The right solution is Opera Windows, right? That's the objectively um, better solution for the people who are going to be in that building for, for any, any outcome that you possibly look at, right? That's the right idea. But traditional practice had made, has made this rule and the rules based on control, right? Mm-hmm. Not on human joy, not on human health, not on experience. It's based on top-down control, says windows will be sealed for reason X, Y, and Z, which maybe or maybe not have ever been evaluated factually. Anyway, so we'll get us off from windows in, in, uh, in, in uh, podcast three about building systems. So just a super quick one word detour, yeah. but a sentence. Um, have family in Europe, have had some family in hospitals in Europe. Every hospital room in Europe, the window's open. But somehow we can't seem to pull that off in our country. Okay, vision. Let's start with number one, vision. One of your quotes, the power of a vision is the ability to elevate every design decision to a higher level of meaning. So with that as a kickoff, talk to me about vision. So we, we, what I found, so a lot of what I did as a consultant is helped firms find or create or establish a vision. Um, And buildings, buildings are incredibly complicated. Um, And there are lots of different success criteria. So it's very easy for a team uh, and a lot of people work on them, right? It's very easy for a team to just be like running off in different directions. Different members of the team and different members of the firm might have a different idea of what is to be considered success. So like very, very like cartoony high level examples, like one person might be like success for me is having a photograph of this building um, in Metropolitan Magazine or whatever, <laughs> right? And then success for a client might be... Um, I want low utility bills, right? I don't want to get any complaints. And success for the occupant, who's very rarely at the table at this point, would be like, I want a great environment. Um, And even within the firm, like, yeah, a really healthy environment. Even within the firm, like people, different people working on the project, that photograph in Metropolis might not matter to somebody else. Somebody else might care about low energy use, right? Somebody else might care about embodied carbon, who who knows, whatever. When you have... And then without a vision, you're not going to be able to achieve like something great because you're constantly right. going to be running off in different directions. Once a firm has a clear vision about what they want to achieve, and that vision could be a lot of different things. Let's say that we are all about human health. Like that is the lens through which decisions are made. Um, do we go with design choice A? Do we go with design choice B? The question is what's better for human health for the occupant? And then we choose that one. So decision making becomes easier. It becomes more clear cut. The work of a firm um, becomes more consistent. Um, it's kind of moving in a direction. You're learning things and you're continuing to push this idea. So the vision is essential. And there's a chapter in the book about like how to create a vision, 
how to use a vision, what are the essential elements of a vision. Not not all visions are good. Some visions are better than others. And then how to how how to get a firm to like fully embrace this idea and work together towards a common goal. Yeah. Yeah, I love you you pose two questions, I suppose, as part of a visioning charade or a visioning exercise. First is what does design excellence mean to you? You know, and design excellence has become somewhat of a of a jargony thing. I mean, not really, but it could say, what does excellent architectural design mean to you? And the second one was, what is the purpose of architecture, right? So you want to get someone visioning, ask deep questions. Don't say, uh, what magazine cover do you want to have your work on? Well, I mean, to be to be clear, let's like, I don't want to say like, my goal is not to have the photograph in a magazine. But to be clear, like that's that could be a vision. And if everybody in the firm is working towards that singular goal, like, sure, you're more likely to get there. Well, um, I, I, it's not what I would propose. Not, not what I would propose as one of my visioning workshops. Is there not something like a bright line between um, like an appropriate vision for your practice for society and an inappropriate vision of just ego strokes? Or, or do you count ego strokes as an appropriate vision? Well, I guess we're, we're talking about two steps, two different things. So I would say, number one, if you want to accomplish anything, you need to have a vision. And then in addition to that, there's some visions that I think are good and there's some visions that I think are not good. So so the, the premise of this book is healthy, equitable, sustainable architecture. I think that is fundamental to good design. And I think that the profession is moving very clearly in that direction where we're going to question why we would be doing things that don't result in kind of better, better health, more equity, kind of taking care of the climate. So I do think that the vision should be in, in that realm, right? I think that you can have a vision for better human health, for, for zero carbon, uh, for real resilience. And that, and that's all good. If, 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 uh, if you wanted to accomplish anything else outside of that realm, you still need a vision to accomplish that. So the, the, the principles will still be relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was principles with an L-E-S, not an A-L-S? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I get it. You're, you're, the, the vision is, is something that, well, let's just be really clear. The vision is something that you don't create during the, the fog of war or during the, you know, when things right. are just hopping and you, you end up doing things because this is the way we've always done it. And good Lord, I just need to get this done and off my plate, right? So the vision, you set aside some time, you create this intentional space and time to develop your vision, to really tap into your values. That's why those questions, what is the purpose of architecture, right? What does design excellence mean to you are so important. But then the result of the vision is a vision statement. It's ultimately a, a sentence or a few sentences, I suppose, that is used not as a baseline, but like a, a reference or a standard against which or with which to compare your decisions, you know, against which, I guess, to compare the outcome. Right. And I think that it's a valuable tool for building community within a practice, um, for building camaraderie. It's a valuable tool for both recruiting talent, mm-hmm. but also for understanding what firm you want to work at if you if you are the talent. And I mean, I would give a give advice for any any young architect who's seeking to join an architecture firm is to ask what's, what's your vision? What are you trying to accomplish? Like what's your vision for how architecture impacts or influences or interacts with the world? And if the firm doesn't have an answer, I would, I would say that's problematic. 
Right? Yeah, absolutely. it doesn't mean that you can't like they can recognize you can you can then develop one, which is all great. Mm-hmm. But I get it. I mean, I, I guess what you're saying in a very polite way to me is like you don't have to be messianic about this. You don't have to like your vision doesn't have to be to save the world, right? Or something. your vision doesn't have to be the save the world, right? <laughs> Just to move it forward somewhat, yeah. But the vision, but the vision should be again. It should be clear. It should be concise. It should be meaningful. It should be deeply held. It should be true. And, <laughs> it should be true. It should be based on reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to point out, interject here, and um, no, I'm not insecure, but, you know, our engineers have visions too, and so do all the consultants. And I and I do think that your vision, first of all, expresses itself sort of implicitly in a lot of your behavior and decisions you make. And what it, what happens is if if project teams share somewhat of a common vision of what they're about, what they're doing, what is the purpose of architecture? that is really a positive synergy that, that has deep, like kind of causes deep alignment and things to flow more easily. Um, just super quickly, like that I have had so many times where, so we're, we don't spec any primary heating sources using fossil fuels, right? Period. And that's fine. And the architects love that. That's, that's part of the vision until the bid comes back. And then they say, well, they use this word just, and the word just this once, just this time, just for now. I don't know. We, I feel like personally, I could. I would love to unpack the word just. Like, what does it mean? I mean, my, my son says this. It's like, time to go to bed. I'm just going to play with trains. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just finishing this puzzle. Yeah. So the point is that, like, they just want to do one more boiler, you know, just one more furnace. And, and then they'll, they'll actually uh, align their actions with their values, you know, and I hope I didn't sound too critical, but what I'm saying is like the vision needs to be there and it needs to be put somewhere central in the mind space of all the people on the team to say, please don't, please remember this, that you don't want fossil fuels too. And that your engineer acted on your behalf to promote your vision. And just because the installing contractor didn't, you know, but this, this gets to something that I I love about your book is the pragmatism, I guess the reality stating of your like schedule and budget are powerful right and wait could it be someone's vision to get every project in on time and on budget regardless of the design quality <laughs> well what i what i what i mentioned somewhere in the book is like is like sure it's very important to get it on time and on budget but what is it that we're getting in on time and on budget right. and if if what that thing is if your goal is is, is uh 1970 schedule and budget Mm-hmm. And nothing else matters. Like you're going to hit those goals, but it's going to be a bare minimum product. Right. right. It's So that is, I mean, that's important, but it's just not enough. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important to point out that the, the reason for doing this work in the first place is that you're the architect, you've attracted a client and now you get to express your values. Now you get to have impact in the world. And well, it's, a, it's a big thought, but like everything that's done, all the, all the design expertise that's applied, all the exertion, all the time, all the thought, then all the materials, you know, the embodied energy, the operational energy, all of it exists in service of the occupant and the long-term, you know, well-being of society using that building. And so to the extent you screw that up, you, you don't achieve good outcomes, you could argue that, well, everything that went into that project has been somewhat wasted because it didn't hit its goals. And I feel like that sounds harsh. And I also feel like it's true. Is that harsh? I, I mean, so 
Yes, yes and no. Right. I, 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 let's go back to your gas boiler example. It's pretty clear that we don't want gas boilers in our projects, right? And we don't need as, them. And we don't need them, right? As a society, we're moving towards an electric economy, an electric infrastructure. Gas is a historic technology that hopefully will become obsolete in the future. Um, it's already technically obsolete in buildings from a need standpoint, but not yet from a <laughs> what are we installing um, and what is the cheapest option in many cases. So a vision, if if a firm cares about climate change, if they care about air quality to the degree that they cared about things like, let's say, keeping water outside of a building, uh, which is fundamental to architecture, they, the, the choice of the boiler just wouldn't be on the table, right? And if you don't have a vision um, and it's not deeply held and it's not meaningful, the cost estimate comes back. The budget comes, the, we, we, we like the electric option, but the gas option comes out cheaper. So we're going to just do it this time. If you have a deeply held vision, it's like, no, we, we just don't do, we just don't do gas. Electrification is, is, is important to us as, as a practice, as people. Um, we can make the case why. Um, if we need to cut costs elsewhere to make the budget numbers work, we can do that because this is a priority. And obviously, at the end of the day, the architect doesn't get to control the system that goes into the client's house. The client is going to have the final say. And the architect can make the case about why the electric system is better, right? And they can make the case about how it could fit in the project on the project's budget. And if the client says, no, I want the gas, it's fine, right? But what I don't want and what what would indicate a, a weak vision is the numbers come back, oh, it's cheaper, let's go with that. Right. Yeah. It, the building might have gas, but not because we didn't make a clear argument and and make an effort uh, to make it to make the electric system work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I I would like to point out that often what happens is uh, the engineer is asked to make the case to the client. I mean, I know that there are many architects that can make it very without needing any backup, but there are some that do. I just want to be clear that happens maybe more than more than not for us. But you actually, you, you like triggered, triggered something for me. And it's something I, I wanted to bring up last time and it got toward the end of the show and I didn't, but it's, it's this idea of here's the, here's how the process goes. So the architect has a vision, they design a building, they, they bring in us, we have like-minded visions, we design a system and especially post pandemic, it goes out in the world and it gets bid and we get the news from the architect, you know, maybe we're already at CD, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully we're at DD or something. Oh, these these mechanical bids came in really high, or the plumbing, or the electrical. You know, some aspect. These came in really high. Well, first of all, it's like relative to what, but then you know the next thing is okay. We need find we need to do cost reduction strategies, and you know everyone calls calls it VE, but the VE you know moniker is an affront to both the word value and the both engineering. It's just cost cutting, and it should be cogs as such. But there's this implicit. This is a little bit of a rant, so apologize. Friendly rant. I love you, dude. If there's this implicit statement of like, you, Positive Energy, are a forward-looking firm, and uh, the weight of traditional practice in architecture is adjacent to the weight of traditional practice with this installing contractors' work, and it tilted the pendulum such that they they priced the heat pump higher than they needed to, probably. But there's this implicit statement of like, that we designed in excess functionality or excess quality that can be removed and not change the function function, right? Like, but fundamentally what they're saying, what I hear is 
my practice, my client, somebody has a doesn't value the mechanical system. They have a, something else as a higher priority. You know, these heart and lungs of the home, my pre-lungs aren't valued by me. I don't, I don't have that value. So this is too expensive, you know, relative to what? And I, my question, like what comes up for me is always smaller, better home. Like don't, like I didn't gold plate the design. I simply said, we need to heat, cool, ventilate, control humidity and filter, you know, provide makeup there. Okay, so yeah, I can hear the rant. I apologize, audience. Apologize, Corey. But but this this does get into something where it's like this vision needs to be in place, and it, you need to remember it and use it in moments like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So a few thoughts. One thing that you called out specifically is the cost came back higher relative to what? Right. Yeah. Since the so, pandemic, it's been nuts. By the way. It's- what what? Yeah. So, but 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 generally, it's like. We traditional practice is the way things have been done in the past. They might be good. They might be bad, right? We want to do something different and better that might cost more compared to what was done in the past, which is bad. Right. So it's not, so it's not so crazy that cost for something good is coming out higher than something, something right. bad. Well, especially with the fossil right? fuel, you know, right. the, the externalities of the bad don't it seem to impact the but, yeah, so the the I mean, another way of, of like you could flip that around. That'd be like, let's say that um, you design a house, and you're looking to cut costs, and you're like, let's just cut the roof. We don't need a roof. It, co- <laughs> it costs it costs too much, right? Where can we find where can we find some budget cut? We're just gonna get rid of the roof. And <laughs> oh, right, and, you, and, you're, and you're and you're laughing because it would be ridiculous because our culture, our society, our practice says that a building has a roof to keep the water out. It's not so crazy to be in a scenario where burning gas in a building is just as ridiculous as not having a roof because of the harm that it caused from mm. climate change, from indoor air quality, yeah, from 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 whatever else, right? We're just not there culturally yet. So I, I just want to say, like, things change. Everything is responding back to something else. But maybe it shouldn't be responding back to something else. Maybe it should be viewed on its own merits by itself, right? So, yeah. yeah. We're hearkening back to the theme of the last show, which is that traditional practices are changing very quickly relative to, you know, Vitruvius's time, let's say, and that we need to keep up. So let's, let's wrap up vision. Let me make one more point on costs because you bring up costs. Please. And I think a lot of this chapter talks about, or a lot of these chapters talk about how to talk about various things. Right. We don't always talk about them well. We don't always make the cases the way that we should. And we are too quick sometimes to just accept the status quo. So when somebody says that we can't afford something, what they're really saying is we don't have those priorities. Right. There's a bazillion different things that go into a building. And people will pay for what they prioritize. And people will prioritize what they understand and what they value. So sometimes... And I love that. Thank you. I want to applaud People pay for what they prioritize. People prioritize what they understand. And, and what they value, right? So they have values. People have values in certain things. They might not understand exactly how those vials relate to the built environment because it is, it's complicated. It's a lot of kind of uh, detail work. But it's not impossible to educate clients, educate our coworkers, to understand the clear path between values and uh, priorities and, and costs. So, I mean, from a from a family standpoint, right? Some different families have different priorities. One family might really like to eat out, and they 
frequently go out to restaurants. Like another family might really value vacation. So they'd never go out to restaurants and they save up money so that they can travel together. And what, and the first family might say, how are they always traveling? We could never afford that, right? Well, the other family might say, how are they always eating out? We could never afford to do that. Like in that case, they're confusing priorities with, with costs. Like obviously they could afford to do the other thing right. if they had those priorities. Now, the, for the, in the case of the family, you, you know what your priorities are. You know your preferences. It's, it's very clear whether you prefer have lots of bicycles or lots of uh, vacations or lots of whatever else. Bicycles. <laughs> bicycle. In, I want lots of bicycles. I want kites. Kite lots, of kite, lots of kite surfing equipment. Mm-hmm. In architecture, people have values, but they might not have, and this is clients specifically, might have values, but they might not have the knowledge because it's technical inside architectural engineering knowledge to understand how their values values relate to the final product. So their priorities might be in the wrong place. So for example, hence the value of writing it down in a vision, hence the value of writing it down in a vision. (laughs) So, so for example, an organization that hires an architect might care a lot about social equity and they might be all about social equity and they might not understand why the choice of electric systems over gas systems actually results in greater social equity from the perspective of who is breathing that exhaust from the acceptance of where is that gas being extracted from and what are the people there experiencing now if we educate that client to understand how their values relate to the final product you can change the priorities people might pay for different things so anyway really roundabout way of, of trying to answer yeah to answer our it. question yeah i love it um you just popped in my head, the atmosphere or the geobiosphere is like the ultimate commons. Um, okay, I'm gonna, let's do lightning round on vision. I'm going to drag you through. I'm going to not drag you. I'm going to walk you through, escort you through a few ideas. Vision should be simple, precise, and deeply accepted by the entire practice. Make a short comment on that. And then I'll give you Climate, one. health, and equity. This is, this is the vision of Bohr Architecture, where I'm director of sustainability. And every design decision we make, we say, does this advance our vision of climate, health, and equity? If yes, we do it. If no, we don't do it. Super simple. Here's a hard one. You have clarity and precision are features of an effective vision. Clarity and precision. And you, 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 lever, you, you move on to say establishing measures is right. important. So what does, when we say climate, health, and equity, you could dig down each of those a little bit further. What does health mean? Specifically, it means indoor air quality. And specifically, it means metrics, achieving metrics of indoor air quality. And that could be PPM of CO2. That could be maximum thresholds for VOCs. So super clear, high-level vision. But if you dig down a layer, uh, it's precise and it's measurable. Yeah, love it. Next one is, and I, have, I get the first comment here as the interviewer. Finally, developing a vision requires looking at both the work and into the heart. And my comment is about the into the heart aspect, which is that everything we do, like you, me, our families, all our friends, we want a good quality of life. And what that ultimately means is a good quality emotional experience of life, right? You know, if if I'm lying on a beach sipping a latte, you know, but I feel terrible because I've cheated and lied to get there, right? that didn't work out. Anyway, so I think I love that you say it requires looking at both the work and into the heart. Quick comment. 
Anything? So the idea is like the vision should align with what you've been doing in the past. If you're if you're a firm and you're creating a new vision, it should align with what you've been doing in the past. So for instance, if you're a firm that creates hospitals, going setting a, new, a zero for net zero buildings is probably not the 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 thing to do because it's a very challenging building type to get net zero. But going all in on human health and non-toxic finishes seems like really nice alignment. And then when I say look into the heart, you have to be clear about what you want to accomplish. If you, as a practitioner, deeply cares about um, a certain topic, let's say, let's say supply chains and eliminating unequitable labor practices, and and that is something that you that you care deeply about, that you that you understand, that you research, like it makes a lot of sense for that to be the thing that you're trying to achieve through your work. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right, I have a few. I scoured the web for a while and got a few vision statements and I was going to read them, but I'll just read a couple and you can give me some thoughts. And then, and I think we should move to culture very quickly here, but to pioneer sustainable, so is a vision statement to pioneer sustainable architecture, driving positive change by creating spaces that not only meet the needs of today, but contribute to a resilient and harmonious future for communities and the planet. I mean, it's it's good, right? You have to see. What do you give it? You got you got to, It's it's good. And I mean, the question would be two things. Number one is, what's the next level down? Mm-hmm. And like, what are the measures that you're using to evaluate whether the whether the uh, work is reaching that vision? And number two, how seriously is that vision accepted by everybody at the firm who's working towards it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I have eight of these. I'm just gonna read one more. To to lead. Here's another one. To lead the industry. I, this one gets into the you get what you do, right? Like meaning, I mean, not like you understand what you do, but like what you do as an architecture firm is the type of projects that you attract. But this one is to lead the industry in adaptive reuse and revitalization, breathing new life into existing structures and existing urban spaces, preserving heritage while embracing the involving needs of contemporary living. So so I love this one mm-hmm. because of how specific it is, right? Mm-hmm. If you say... If you say that our goal is sustainability, like that's great, but you have to then again on the next level down be very specific to what that means. The the one that you just read is so specific that right. it would be very yeah. clear if a design decision is living up to that vision or not. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what firm that is, but I bet they're doing good work. Yeah. And there's more. We could we could do a whole episode on vision, apparently. I mean, that's one of the downsides of you and I trying to do a podcast together is that we're friends. <laughs> all right so the next point that we're going to talk about is culture and um i will say that culture and vision mission you know they they sort of swirl together they're they're kind of coming from the same space but you have at the scale of this is a quote at the scale of a civilization or an organization culture comprises the beliefs attitude values and behavior of a group, right? This is why in the beginning, when we talk about relational signaling and cultural norms are being what signal through architecture, this is so powerful. And I guess, yeah, please comment on culture. You, you, you wrote a book on it. I don't have to prompt you too deeply. The, uh, the behavior piece I think is especially important. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you believe certain things. Actions uh, matter. Dude. There are mm-hmm. certain norms around that. And that all leads to how you behave. And the behavior is how, like, how ideas are manifest in the world. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up right at the beginning of this chapter, 
this this sort of um, primacy or latent primacy, hidden primacy, latere is to hide of schedule, budget, and appearance, right? I feel like I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but you remember that they're they're what impacts you closer in time. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, and and there's a diagram in the book, which I think is helpful for eliminating, for like presenting that point. There's multiple outcomes of a work of architecture, right? We mentioned before, it's got to be on budget. It's got to be on schedule. um, It's got to look good. If it's not on budget, like there's a financial loss, right? You can't keep your doors open if it's uh, potentially, right? Or you have to work for free to bring it back down. If it's not on schedule, the client's upset, maybe you don't get repeat work. If it's not attractive, um, nobody's interested in hiring you again. If it's not, if it doesn't perform well, if it, let's just say that it has subpar air quality or higher than it should utility bills or harms people in a whole other part of the world, mm-hmm. um, that feedback loop is too long to have an impact on the designer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long or big in space and in uh, right. time. And what that means is that as much as as much as you might care about sustainability, as much as a firm or a practice or an individual might care about sustainability, it's usually the lowest priority because you don't have that feedback loop that's constantly kind of encouraging you to improve on that topic, the way that the feedback loops just naturally encourage you to constantly focus on and constantly work towards success in those other three areas. Yeah. And again, in uh, your own words, while the consequences of success or failure on budget schedule and aesthetics are immediate, local, and personal, the outcomes associated with performance are abstract and distant, both in time and space. Yeah. And so this gets into, again, at least for me, it, it reminds me of the pen controls tobacco. What controls the pen? Right. Is, is culture, is vision, is these, these softer things. So if the culture of a firm can somehow create that quick feedback loop for performance to compete with the naturally quick feedback loop for a budget schedule and appearance, that's how you're going to make these high performance outcomes, health, climate, equity, relevant and able to compete with everything else. That's how you're going to get to good outcomes. Mm -hmm. So an example of how that happens, let's say you have design crits and the, the principals in the firm are constantly asking the design team, how does this project improve the air quality for the occupants, right? That's a quick feedback loop. How does this project, let's say that you consistent, like as a firm, you decide that every phase we are going to energy model and we're going to compare that against the benchmark and we're going to look for ways to improve. That's a way of bringing that feedback loop of carbon, which otherwise could be a hundred years long or, or more um, kind of front and center within a design process. But that's all cultural. Um, what, what is prioritized during a design review is based on the culture of the firm, the vision of the firm, the individual people who are working on the project, who are leading the effort. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, it's not, it's interesting in, in the uh, italics, interesting. It means hard and it's a little bit, it's, it's rich. But like, you know, another sentence from you, a strong culture can question and overcome the limits of traditional practice, this weight of traditional practice by making abstract, impersonal impacts, real and actionable. You wrote that. And I want to be clear to listeners here, right? You can't just read a book and suddenly this is easy, right? This is, this is not magic. And I, I just spoke at the FIAS conference. Again, we're not supposed to date podcasts, but we just did. This is November, 2023. 
about the it's, it's the day that the book is launching it's, the day the book launch. it's obviously this is a dated podcast yes and um so i just spoke at fias about Danella meadows's work with leverage points you know and thinking in systems and it was huge it was like it clearly i feel like we're at a, we're at a time in our practice as aec industry where people recognize the technology is here i won't sprawl into this and we need to think about these soft things like vision and culture and yet, even in that context, it's still not magic. It's still hard, right? You you have to do this thing where the firm culture has to like dig in its heels or create a counterbalance to the weight of traditional practice, and that has to be intentional and vigilant and you know effective, right? It's not just going to happen. So the next aspect you mentioned on culture, it was um, like I blushed and kind of felt apprehensive reading it because it's about leadership. You know, a company tends on to take tends to take on the image of its leaders. And you mentioned um, Yvonne Chenard and Travis Kalanick. I could have done a Christoph Irwin. Uh, yeah, as well. Exactly. So yeah, I, I could. My staff knows very well. Like we have a good, strong vision. We want to move things forward, and yet we have a problem. You know, clear boundaries are compassionate boundaries is a slogan in our company because we, I tend to say, yeah, sure, I'll help you. The number of times I get calls every week, can I pick your brain for a minute? It's like, uh, I'm using my brain. Um, <laughs> okay, but yeah, say a little bit, please, and I'll just try to hold my seat about leadership and culture. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, so the, the leaders, leaders at a firm are very important at establishing that culture. And... So for example, if you have a vision statement, but the leader specifically a, like a founding principle has ideas that are counter to that vision statement, what are the people going to believe? Right? Yeah. They're going be to believe, they're going to believe the leader. So yeah. it's important that leaders in any practice, and, and I guess just to step back, like the, the chapters on vision, the chapters on culture, though I write them from the perspective of architecture, these ideas are relevant to really any, any profession, any organization. Um, so it, it could be architecture, it could be engineers, it could be, it could be lawyers, it could be bankers, it could be whatever, right? It could be a, a nonprofit organization. You need to have a vision in order to operate consistently towards a common goal. And you need to have a culture that creates an environment where people work towards that vision, right? And the, and the leaders of that organization have an overarching impact on the decisions and then eventually the behavior of everybody in that organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause what they're doing is they're, they're signaling the values through their actions, right? They're demonstrating priorities. And um, the last one you write about, those are both from Corey, by the way, providing safety through social belonging. I mean, at a fundamental level, we're just a group of people. A company is a group of people working together with a common aim and, goodness gracious, it should be done in an environment of, of, you know, mutual support and friendliness and warmth. Yeah. We talked about risk taking earlier around vision, where traditional practice has this way that we do things. And though it's subpar, it's consistent. So people are confident in it. And if you want to do something better, it's often perceived as a risk. That safety through social belonging from the leadership is so important because that allows people to take those necessary risks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's say that just I don't know, random example where we've used vinyl flooring. We want to switch over to a bioplace product, which um, does not have the same health and environmental 
and social impacts as vinyl. Uh, but we've, we've never installed in a building before. We don't know how it looks after 10 years. The safety through social belonging, um, understanding that by specifying this better product in line with the vision of the firm and the organization, the leadership um, will kind of embrace and protect this person, encourage that risk-taking and say, if things go wrong, you're not going to be standing alone. That's beautiful. After leadership, you have signaling values. And, and this one's pretty straightforward, right? This, this, this... Yeah, the signaling values is, I think it's, it's and it's, again, it's a leadership topic, right? The, the leaders will be believed on what they do, not what they say. So like, if you say sustainability is important, but you like, I don't know, get your lunch delivered every day in a styrofoam tray, like right. no, nobody's going to believe you, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 the actions, who cares about the ERV, right? That kind of, the thing. actions matter, right? Right. If we say that sustainability or health is important, but our office doesn't live up to those standards, like no one's going to believe you. Yeah. No, the, the third one is demonstrating priorities and it's, it's very similar. It's, um, you know, signaling values, you could argue, is could happen either as an action or as a statement. And then demonstrating priorities is a little more like what you do, what you've specced, what you've designed. Right. How do, what, how do, what do you talk about in a client meeting? So we had that story earlier of the architect who talked about the, the benefit of operable windows at a client meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what topics do you bring up? What's, right. what, do you, what do you demonstrate as being important? Right, exactly. And you know, if the first thing you say is this project has to be on budget and on schedule no matter what um, versus you know, this, you know, mostly what's happening today, I think probably for you as well, is clients come in educated as to what the range of outcomes they, they could achieve are. And they want the ones that signal to their society and their peers that we're thoughtful and we want to help move society forward, not backward. And so they, they're bringing to us like, let's do this. You know, let's, let's think about ground source systems or hydronic systems. So I think we've covered a lot on culture here. Um, the, the, the last thing that I want to touch on is this idea of incentives. Mm-hmm. Good. And I talk a bit about incentives in the book. Incentives are kind of economic talk for <laughs> encouraging people to do behave a certain way. Right. And, and, and uh, when you take an economics class in college, like one of the first things you learn is that people respond to incentives. So if milk costs more, people buy less milk. If milk costs less, people buy more milk, right? Um, so governments can use taxes or subsidies to kind of encourage decisions in a good direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and organizations do the same thing. And the, and the incentive is not always financial, though it could be. It could be, it could be praise. Let's, say that, let's <laughs> say that you have an employee of the month, right? And the employee of the month is consistently the person who fights for better health outcomes for their for their um, projects? That's a very different incentive than if the employee of the month is the one who consistently cuts corners and brings in project and brings in larger profits because of that. Right. So well, I mean, you could argue that there's there's different incentives. Like so, ultimately, you know, you mentioned on budget, right? So there's two on budgets. There's within the firm, within the practice, the. the Typically, you know, salaries are the biggest cost, so you want to control time invested. And so if, if, if Corey Squire goes rogue and starts doing, um, you know, daylight modeling for two weeks instead of whatever else he was, quote unquote, supposed to be doing, 
is that a cost, right? Is that it's, it's a- well, I mean, just to be clear, budget, I mean, profitability is important, right? Coming in on budget is very important. Sustainability or health or equity outcomes is not a threat to projects coming in budget or coming in schedule. It does mean that we have to do things a little bit differently. So with your example, let's say that we didn't study the daylight. So the project ends up being poorly daylit. Like people are going to suffer because of that. Um, but if we did invest the time and better design that results in better outcome, that's a valuable part of the design process. The design process is long and we get to decide how we invest that time, right? Yeah. And we're not saying that we have to add additional things. We should question how we're investing that time in a way that results in the best outcomes for the project while also coming in a time, coming in a budget, being profitable as an organization. Right, right. And, you know, the, the ultimate like best outcomes you know, assuming you haven't impaired the organization's ability to continue to exist, is going to be the the satisfaction, the joy, the peace of mind, the the sense of personal you know meaning and reward that you get from doing a design that aligns with your values. That's the ultimate. Plus the the real outcomes, right? If you get excellent daylight, excellent air quality, you can measure that. You can establish yourself as an expert. You can share those outcomes with potential clients, and hopefully get hired by people with that value alignment. Right, right. I mean, not to bog into it, to mention it though, this on budget has that fork that, you know, it's like a fork points one direction toward within the firm, the other direction, the design that went to the client also has the design has budget implications and the client has some budget expectation. And if they're not aligned at all, if they're in dissonance, you know, the client said my budget is X and this design you gave me, I take it out to the world and I get two X. Um, that's a problem. And, you know, it, it's, it stings as an engineer, right? This implication, this sort of subtle implication. Like- but the problem, again, the problem is not cost. The problem is not cost. The problem is values, right? Mm-hmm. Good point. So, yeah, I mean, there's no reason to believe that we can't get good outcomes on the same budgets that we're working on. We just have to realign priorities, right? And that might mean that you don't get a pool because you want great air quality. Or it might mean that your house is a little bit smaller, but the quality is, 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 is greater. Or it might mean that the marble from Italy gets replaced with the marble from Minnesota. So w- like, what are the ultimate goals of the project? The ultimate goals of the project are to spend a lot of money on exotic marble. That's different than if the goals of the project were great indoor air quality, <laughs> resilience, health, all those things. So. The goal, my vision is to spend a lot of money on exotic marble. That's good. But no, actually, I, I shouldn't have left. I mean, that, that was a very important series of statements. And, and I'm really glad that it came out here, right? This And essentially, what, what you came around to saying was smaller, better building. If so a, a lot of so a lot of areas. So I, I think generally, we're not are like the way things are done right now is generally not the way they should be done right now. There's some things we should probably spend a little bit more money on. There's some things we should probably spend a little less money on. Overall, I do think that it's probably better for architecture to study the value of square footage in relation to the value of the quality of the building. We say that one more time, please. Overall, you think it's better? I love it. Yeah, value is <laughs> I mean, that- as a society, we might be overemphasizing square footage and underemphasizing mm-hmm. health, and health, climate, and equity. Economic, you know, underlayment to why we emphasize square footage because that's when it'll be resold. But, I mean, we've had we've had just some like jaw dropping things as a an engineer, so like a sustainability infused engineering firm, where 
we find out, oh, I'm sorry, we've had to drop the um, MEP design budget from the project. Our clients went to France and fell in love with this $400,000 chandelier they want to put in their entryway. So we've cut the MEP and we're just going to do design build, right? Uh, <laughs> it's just astounding, right? You're just like, okay. You so, know what I mean, and that's an idea of like cost follows priorities and priorities follow values and knowledge. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand the benefit of the design engineering system, that it has no value and you'd obviously choose the chandelier. If you do understand the value and you see how that value of better health aligns with your values of wanting to be healthy, you might prioritize that $40,000 in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, this there's was a really lot of, There's part. a lot of chandeliers, wonderful chandeliers that are available for $20,000. Yes, exactly. There you go. And, and this gets into really the part one, right? So what was, it was, you know, like a stun, a stunning uh, statement to receive and the second level of stunning was like, and you didn't push back, right? You, the architect said, oh, okay, I'll let the engineer know. Out, out they go. But we covered that in part one. We, let's, let's move on. So vision, culture. Next one is the design process itself. So clearly the process is impactful on the outcomes, right? You, you, uh, Think about cooking for an example, right? Things like that. And I think that what I love about the book and I love about the, the brain of the author is that you think in processes, right? You, you, you have this ability to um, kind of clarify, like, like you just did with values, like this chandelier thing. Like that's a statement of priorities, right? So talk to me about process. How does an effective process consistently instill high performance outcomes? So I think that, so lots of, lots of firms have a typical design process and for the most part, they're fine. Um, there's a few specific things that I suggest in the book that can kind of elevate a design process to achieve better outcomes. One of them is setting goals. And this will sound familiar from this idea of a vision. So if a vision is kind of where we want to aim for, from the perspective of a firm or an organization or a body of work, uh, goals are what we want to achieve for a specific project, right? The goals should probably relate to the vision in some way, but they should be more specific to the project. And just like if you don't have a vision and people are just running off and doing different things uh, at the level of an organization, if you don't have goals, then the design team is not kind of marching forward consistently towards some desired outcome. Right. So that's like the most important part of a design process is to set goals. They should be set early. They should be similar to what we discussed before. They should be clear, simple, specific, measurable. And uh, it's just, you you can't overstate the importance of goal setting if you want to achieve good outcomes. Well, yeah, I agree completely. Um, How do you overcome this thing where, you know, when it comes to the performative aspects of an architectural design, um, this gets back into, you know, utilitas, fermitas, venustas, right? these highly technical quantitative aspects of design can be seen as an emotional kind of downer, as you write in the book, you know, introducing new, what do you write? Introducing new rules, limitations, technical constraints into an already difficult process. So there's it's like, it's not going to be easier because you focus on process. And let's be very clear. Your process is the process of achieving what your vision and culture are aiming for. Right. Exactly. So, so I think after 
after goal setting, a few other things that you want to touch on within a process, you want to make sure that you are following kind of um, established best practices. You want to, there's not, you don't have to like make up everything or kind of reinvent the wheel every time. There's some things that we know work, some things that we know don't work. So just having access to those, understanding those and utilizing them consistently. You want to be able to analyze design decisions that maybe fall outside of the realm of best practices. And you want to evaluate how things went at the end of the process. Like you need to have a post-occupancy phase of a project um, so that if you make a mistake, you don't repeat it on the next project. You learn from that. And if you do something excellent, you do repeat it on the next project. You learn from that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you remind me of this reality that, well, it's just a little bit of a, like an MEP perspective, mechanical, yeah, MEP perspective, where electrical and plumbing, it's pretty much like there's these rules, there's pretty much one good answer for the most part, but a mechanical is, is getting more similar. Mechanical design is getting more similar to architectural design in the sense that there's myriad ways to get to the same outcome and you're using a lot of judgment and trade-offs and thinking about things. Okay, I'll just leave that there. You don't have to comment on it, but you do, you do comment in your uh, chapter here on process on OPR, you know, and the P is not for process. It's owner's project requirements. Owner's project requirements. So I think this is super important. So um, I, I, it's worth drawing a distinction between like a goal and a standard over here. Mm-hmm. So a goal, when I talk about goal setting, um, I talk about goals being aspirational, being being exciting, interesting, pushing the project forward, creating a story through which you'll tell the project, uh, the story that you'll tell about the project in the future. Mm-hmm. And not everything that's important is interesting and exciting. Um, sometimes it's just standards that you have to hit. So let's talk, let, let, like for for example, like low flow fixtures. Mm-hmm. Uh, low flow fixtures are good for conserving water. Um, you don't really have to do anything. You don't have to set a goal for low flow fixtures. You just document the, the, the flow rates that you want. And, and you, you, you buy them and you move on. So there's lots of like just technical standards like flow rates, like uh, mechanical system efficiencies, like durability requirements, like all that stuff is super important. And you can document that in an OPR, an owner's project requirements. Um, but then goals, and, and you should hit all of those, by the way, for the OPR. You should just, you should plan on accomplishing all of that. Yeah. For goals, goals are more aspirational. They're more narrative. You may or may not achieve every goal. In fact, maybe you set four goals and you achieve two of them, and maybe one of them is partially achieved. That's what you're working towards. You maybe you're not even sure if you're going to accomplish it at the end. But but again, that's like that, those are the big ideas that push the project forward. That's a subtle point, uh, Corey. Actually, like you have here, the OPR could include solar ready, daylight dimming system, water efficient fixtures. Those also sound like goals to me, and yet you just said that goals are sort of these targets that you're moving toward and you hope to achieve, but that you ultimately recognize, if I'm understanding you right, yeah. you're saying something along the lines of that the goals, there's this tension potentially between them. You know, there's a limited amount of money and design time. Right, yeah. And ultimately, you it might come down to the architectural design team to say, we can't have it all. What are our priorities? Right. I mean, I mentioned like solar ready, like solar ready is not interesting. Like you put the roof in the right orientation, you put in the conduit, you have space for it. Like that's not a goal. That's just, you either do it or you don't do it. Oh, but um, you could break it up with tons of dormers and the 
you know, the MEP design could put plumbing stacks everywhere. Right. That's coordination, right? That's, that's not a goal. That's true. That's just, that's just like standard, like oh, the electrification of global society <laughs> based in the context of this building's roof. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's, let's try to wrap up goals. Here's a sentence from the book. I'd like you to unpack for me, Corey. In addition, goal setting workshops require pomp, P-O-M-P, pomp, go. <laughs> so the, the idea here is that goals are really important, right? And we have to signal, this goes back to cultural leadership. We have to signal that goals are important. And the way that you signal that something is important is you make it special. You, you add something that's kind of not common you want, you want the goal setting workshop to stand out. A project team has a hundred meetings, but only one of those meetings, the goal setting will establish the vision that that project will then work towards achieving for the next two or three years or however long the process takes. So when I say pop, it's like, do something special, like hold, hold the goal setting meeting offsite, mm-hmm. bring in some, bring in some food or cater it in some way. Right. A brass band, perhaps. Bring, bring in a mariachi band, right? Mariachi band. <laughs> um, it, it's just got to be different, and it's got to be special. And you have to signal to the, the participants, it's like, this is important. Don't check your email. Don't multitask. Yeah. Let's get together, and let's figure out what we want to achieve together. And yeah. that is different than every other meeting that um, that's going to take place along the, the I think that's during the design. I'm I'm so glad you put that in the book. It's really like it really connected with me because there's a reason that humans have ceremonies, right? Yeah, that ceremony- right. we need we need some ceremony around goal setting. That might not be the case on every other meeting. Mm-hmm. It really feeds something deep, right? It really feeds something um, important. And I won't say the word mammal again, but it it, it really goes down to a deep core aspect of our of our. Um, Selves. Okay, so let's move on. And uh, listeners, there's more in the book about all these topics. This is not us reading the book to you. Okay, so our, our last topic is uh, what I would probably call information flow. And I believe, and I have an older copy of the book here digitally. You called it resources, and I think you ultimately called it knowledge. Is that right? Uh, uh, the, 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 the title ended up being college information, knowledge, and resources. I think we could have oh, all three of those things. I, I think. I'm trying to remember. Um, okay, editors well, have, the, have the ultimate say over book titles and chapter titles. Well, so yeah, talk to me about that. Talk to me about the, the how to set up and think about information resources and knowledge. Right. So if we, if we think back to like the, what we've covered so far, so the vision is the goal. The culture is the environment that allows or encourages people to reach that goal. Uh, the process is the pathway towards the goal. And then you need tools, right? The resources, the knowledge, the information, these are the tools that you actually use to get there. And what I talk a lot about this chapter is there's a difference between a tool that's useful and a distraction. And it's not always obvious what those, what those two things are. And how do you extract the important knowledge? Like this idea of critical knowledge is what's necessary for you to achieve your goal. And how do you pull that out from 
all the other information in the world, get it to the right people at the right time so that they can make the right decisions. That's a real, a real challenge. Oh boy, um, it's getting to be more a challenge, you know? <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's a real challenge. So I, I dedicate a chapter to those ideas. Beautiful. Just to jump in with an off the wall, let's see how you handle this one. So the tools, the tools to get to the goal, like the tools you actually use to do the work to get to the goal, um, involve sifting through large amounts of information, right? I'm thinking Dilbert, fire hose aimed at a teacup. There's so much information out there. And we today are, are, are those teams that are on the front line of doing work when artificial intelligence is becoming available to our process teams. So a little bit of a pop quiz, you know, like you, you wrote the book, you know, in this shady gray time just before AI, kind of, and now it's here. Um, what are your thoughts or opinions or where are you with information flow and AI? Yeah, so I was I was finishing up this book right when ChatGPT first came out. Right. Um, and we had that like cultural AI moment. So my my my, my joke to myself it's was that I by the way. The, yeah, we're still having it, right? It's not going away. My, my joke to myself was that I wrote the last book that will ever be written. So right. I, I, I don't think that's going to be the case, but it was for, actually, it was like... Um, you mean written by a human. By a, yeah. Um, it was a pretty crazy moment when I've been <laughs> slaving away for two years on a book and then you, you ask the computer a question and it can like put out fairly, fairly well-formed paragraphs. So... I think overall, this will help us more than hurt us. I don't, I don't see AI as being at least the current iteration of AI as in AI as in like generating text and imagery. I don't see that as an existential problem. I see that as another component of like the information landscape. When you ask a person a question, you're going to get an answer and that answer may or may not be true. Mm. Right. Right. And if you ask, <laughs> and if you ask a, a, a Google search a question, you'll pull up a page and that page may or may not have true information. Mm-hmm. And if you ask an AI a question, it's the same thing, right? So I, I do think that we have to be skeptical in terms of what's true and what's factual, the same way that we've always been skeptical about what's true and what's factual. And we want to kind of dig to the bottom, dig to the sources. And we have to have enough information, enough knowledge around a topic so that we can uh, so that uh, we know what questions to ask, right? We know where to get to the bottom of various sources. Um, in terms of like consolidating large amounts of information and maybe pulling out answers, uh, AI could be a could be really useful. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we want to trust everything that comes out, but again, we don't want to trust everything that comes out of of people either. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so my comment on AI is that it's an inexorable societal transition, and you know you need to look at square in the uh, artificial eye and recognize that it's coming. And just a quick aside that Amazon is limited, had to put a cap on the number of uh, AI generated books that were submitted to three books per day. <laughs> Took you how many months to write your book? Yeah. I mean, but the, you know, those books are garbage, right? It's like maybe, maybe in the future AI will be able to write useful books, but, but right now that it, it, it right, right. and to the extent that AI is useful, what it does is it helps us. It helps us with information overload, not exacerbates information. That's, and that is the potential promise of it, right? It, let's say that, let's say that you have all these different sustainable design resources in a collection of resources on a computer 
and you can ask an AI to evaluate to, to based on those resources, give me the answer to this question. That might be a really great use case because otherwise the alternative is you would have to organize all those search with keywords, know what's there, know who to talk to. Um, so as long as the AI isn't making up nonsense and as long as the seed information is good information, um, it could really streamline the time between knowing that you have a problem that you need to solve and getting the information that's necessary for helping you solve that problem. And that's, that's a huge challenge right now. Yes. I agree. Well said. Um, you know, I will say that, that, um, there's another sort of backdrop to knowledge flow and knowledge sharing, which, which is its own art. And I think in some ways people can somewhat figure out what works for them as far as access to the information they need. But that last piece, the information they need, architecture is like crazy in its multiplicity of, of dimensions it needs to you know be successful in achieving good design in. And yet over time, you start to know the structure. You start to be able to anticipate what's going to happen. And um, so for instance, some like you give the example, I don't know if you have it in the book, but you've talked to me before about it. Someone says, hey, where's the code book? You know, I need to see the IECC book. When really what they wanted was the SHGC for the climate zone that their project was in. Well, over time, you end up just remembering the SHGCs, or you certainly could put like a very small, like a three by five card with those numbers in the climate. Right. And so that piece, that that kind of distraction and foggy minded of like, where are those? And what are those numbers again? Boom, there it is. And, uh, you know, same thing like ERVs now should be coming into every architect's um, lexicon, right? To know that they need one and that they're useful. But go ahead, you, you're not, you, you contribute. No, I, I agree 100%. And maybe even... Um... If the AI can read the code book and get you that answer instantly. Yeah, that's exactly. Maybe you don't have to isolate it and maybe you don't have to remember it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think just touching back super briefly, like um, we try really to, as a MEP firm, sustainability infused, whatever we are, to really encourage questions. And this gets back to the, the principle of the firm saying, well, do you windows open in your house to the engineers? When we're asked by... An architect, you know, even some basic questions sometimes, like what is an ERV, you know, what does ACH stand for, or what is 60, ASHRAE 62 about, um, which, can you hear that dog barking? Okay, well, sorry, audience, my dog's barking. Um, so the point is, like, to hear that question and to receive it with, with kindness and kind of enthusiasm, like, oh, good, I'm glad you asked, as opposed to, ha, 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 I know something you don't know, I'm superior, and so I think it's important just to, when it comes to knowledge for the architects in the audience, uh, don't be afraid to ask. And if you get some mocking, you know, don't be afraid to criticize for people for mocking you for asking a good question. Or, you know, if you don't know, you should ask. Yeah, I, I and I guess along those same lines, I try not to use jargon in the book. The audience should be broader than architects. Is ERV jargon? I apologize. ERV? No, I mean I I, I use I use ERV, but I, I spell out what it stands for first, and um, and I think that's a really important from the perspective of like kind of creating an inclusive environment. Mm -hmm. So you don't kind of set a subset of people aside because they have unique knowledge and kind of people who live in houses but don't have formal engineering architectural training uh, really would would value from conversations around ERVs. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've only really been in this this space for about 25 years or so. And I can tell you just within that, that kind of relatively brief window, the concept of bringing in, you know, 
willingly bringing in ventilation air to the space when you've worked so hard to air seal and insulate it. Um, really, they were like intelligent people saying, why would I want to pump in outside air when I've gone to this great trouble? You know, and now I think everyone certainly post pandemic would say uh, breathing. And that's where ERV comes in. Like, well, you can bring in the ventilation without the heat and humidity. And, and then we have a whole chapter on, on air systems when we get into the, the part three of the podcast and part three of the book. Well, that's actually, I think, where, we're, where we are. We've arrived pretty much at the end. Are there any final comments you have about knowledge, resources, and information? I think that... I think it's a challenge. We should recognize that information flow is a challenge, and there's a few kind of examples and tips about how to ease that within that chapter. I, I do want to kind of step back and look at the collection of chapters that we just discussed. Please. Say that, like, the fundamental idea here is that design results from the environment within which the design took place. And we don't always spend enough time thinking about that environment. And again, that's a physical environment. It's a cultural environment. That's an interpersonal environment. It's an informational environment. And if we design the right environment, then some of the like barriers that we have that we've been experiencing to better design outcomes, I th they're just going to melt away, right? A lot of the problems are kind of un unintentionally of our own making. Well said. Well said. That positions us really well for part three. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into uh, design strategies. So uh, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of books about high-performance design strategies. And I think that the, the kind of the, the informational space that this book fits into is the connection between the interpersonal, the cultural, the kind of the practice-based solutions and the technical design strategies that we'll get to that we'll get to next. You can't you can't have one without the other, even though they're not often talked about together. Right. Yeah. And and in your own, you know, your your inimitable style, you I think that's the right word. You you cover a lot of terrain in the design design strategy sections, which really is help helping provide like a context, right? I actually one of the things we didn't bring up in information flow, which is what I call it is the value of, of, of illustrations, of diagrams, you know? Um, and so what, you, what you're doing is you're saying, here's all the pieces and here's how they relate to each other. And that's kind of what you do in part three. You, you don't necessarily go down, 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 down to every, you know, Nat's eyelash of each strategy. Okay, well, thank you. It's been a delight. Um, final thoughts, final words? Well, since you mentioned diagrams, I'd like to do a, a shout out for my my uh, my wife and the book's illustrator, Elena Zambrano. Yeah. Um, her uh, illustrations throughout the book, I think, really help to illuminate a lot of the concepts that we discussed today. She's a brilliant force of nature. All right, Corey, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your caring for giving it all away. And audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Christoph.